Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Blaine Higgs, the premier of New Brunswick on the election, and Justin Trudeau. And Mr. Higgs said he doesn't really believe that Justin Trudeau is committed to TMX. Greg Plugman, ethicist, joined us on climate change meaning perhaps fewer children. The president of Forum Research was with us talking about Quebecers and how they're likely to vote. Lorne Bozanoff is the president. And Dan Lust is a sports attorney in the United States on the rape accusation against Antonio Brown and all the issues surrounding the New England Patriots receiver. Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland, on what happens during an election campaign. How do political parties decide to change course? in the middle of a campaign and Mike Sloan on Twitter at Mike London can is dying of cancer and sharing his experience on Twitter. You'll hear Mike Sloan on the show today. Hi everybody. It's a Sunday edition of the green show and we're going to be talking about the election for some significant period of the show today. We also have some other issues that we're going to get at. And I'll tell you about those as we go through the uh, the show. I do want to say this, that uh, there's going to be a, a rally in Mississauga, Ontario, of course, for Bianca Andrescu after she won the U.S. Open Tennis Championship. And uh, we'll have Albert Delitalo joining us, a reporter with uh, Global News Toronto from the rally. That'll be later on on the show today. I want to begin with this. I had an opportunity on Friday to interview the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, about the federal election And the Premier is one of the six who sent that letter to the Prime Minister about Bills C-69 and C-48, warning that that legislation, or those two pieces of legislation, may undermine national unity. Prime Minister didn't buy this. But Premier Higgs, very outspoken, was on this show two days before Christmas last year and said, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. So I wanted to hear what he had to say, what his thoughts were about the federal election. And he had a lot to say, and he's very straightforward with his answers. Have a listen. Premier Higgs, why is this election particularly important, and are you concerned about potential low voter turnout? Manitoba's uh, provincial election turnout on Tuesday was lower than the 58.8% who voted in 2016. Well, it, it is concerning that the public, uh, you know, if, if they're disengaged in the process. But, but I think that it, it's important that it's informed uh, voter turnout. So in, in the case of um, people, you know, preparing for the election, there's, there's a... There's the the propaganda that you see every day in in the in, in the in the advertising program, uh, but there's there's the understanding the details and how important this election is to the economic futures of our country. We had a conversation uh, last week with uh, Ipsos polling, and uh, I'm sure you saw the numbers. Fifty two percent of Canadians believe our society is broken. Fifty two percent. You one day, actually, just before Christmas of last year on this program, you said we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or a notion. Can we put those two together, what you told me, and this number that 52%, more than half the population, believes that our society is broken? Uh, well, I I actually concur that we have some uh, some significant uh, fundamental breaches in our in our structure. And and that is, uh, you know, something that, that uh, we see this, that it's great to have diversity across our country. I think it's what makes us proud, makes us uh, unique. But there has to be some common underlying themes that makes us strong. And and those are the, the threads that we're breaking. 
Um, and that strength, you know, everyone, no matter where they are, they, they, their, their strength is dependent on, on economically how they can survive and thrive and, and their family provide for their families and, and, and the, the, the quality of life that, they, that we all enjoy. And that's, that's the challenge that we're in right now. I mean, we're in this fundamental uh, transition in our economy where, where we have a, a country that was founded and thrived and, and, and really uh, was a model for the world but primarily funded by our natural resources. And, and so I appreciate that as we transition away from that, and in some categories that there's, a, there's a, a process, but what we see is basically shut the lights out and hope for the best. And, and that seems to be the model of, of uh, where the, the, the federal government has taken us. And that's what concerns me. And so every province is kind of has a different view in Atlantic Canada, particularly, you know, we, we, we don't have the voting base that, that the rest of, uh, particularly Ontario and Quebec, enjoy. And, um, but, but that's where we're losing our national interest is that the, the voting, uh, I guess, uh, political behavior is outstripping the, the uh, fundamental economic realities of our country. You and five additional conservative premiers sent a letter to Justin Trudeau expressing concern bills C-69 and C-48 would not only harm Canada's economy, which I concur on, uh, but it would impact potentially or directly negatively on national unity. Do you still have those concerns? I, I do. I absolutely do. And, that, and that's why I was, I was very pleased to, to see Andrew Scheer, you know, come out in support of an, of an economic corridor through our, through our country. We need to get, we need to get, get this uh, issue about can't do it here, uh, you know, resolved. So that so that investment and resources, whether it be hydropower or, or whether it be gas lines or oil lines or or any sort of transmission corridor, that that there is there is a way to connect our country economically, and that has been the past. You know, that's always been the way. I mean, think back of, uh, I mean, the railroad was was put in for a reason, and our our national highway system is there for a reason, and and what we're missing is this 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 energy corridor that would have been many years ago uh, not a problem has now become a fundamental where one province could shut out the rest um, and and that's what that's what's threatened us because at the end of the day the the economics of what be what is able for people to find employment to work you know that drives uh, what what we all what we're all aspiring to be what we need for services and health and education so when you underpin or you you break that sort of bind or bond you end up with with uh, a situation across the province, not only a class issue where you have provinces very much outstripping others because of their, their you know, geographic or natural advantage, and, um, and that's not what our country was built on. Premier Higgs, one of the things that I remind my listeners about on a regular basis is that each and every day we import 850,000 barrels of foreign oil into this country. Um, and, and, it, and it's imported so that it can be refined essentially, in, in your province. Meanwhile, there was the opportunity for Energy East, for a pipeline, to make its way from Alberta, from the oil sands, through Quebec to New Brunswick. Do you think that given everything that's gone on, everything that we've talked about, the national debates on pipelines, do you think that it's enough of an issue? Do you think enough attention is being paid to the need for pipelines? Do you think people in this country, right to, across the country, understand the importance and the significance of the, of the need for pipelines? No, I don't think. I, I think that the, there's a, a certain segment that say, we just want to shut down fossil fuels. 
if you build a pipeline, you're building it for 30 years, and we don't want to be in the fossil fuel business for 30 years. But, you know, I would say that it doesn't matter uh, the fact that you put in the safest form of transportation at this point in time, and yes, it's an infrastructure that lasts 30 years or beyond. Uh, what it matters right now is that we are still using, to your point, you know, the, the 700,000 barrels a day, and this is not our own oil that we're using. And that, that's criminal. I mean, when you think of that as a, as a nation-building exercise, at the, at the very least, you think, why wouldn't we use our own resources? But when you think of this is not about the next 30 years in terms of, of it being a uh, use of fossil fuels. Technology will decide when fossil fuels become less and less um, uh, available or less and less required. I, I have a book, uh, Ryan, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I have a book at home. Uh, that was written in 1998 or in that range, and it was entitled The End of Oil. And it was based on oil consumption and oil running out in the world. We're no longer even discussing running out. We're discussing how te uh, technological advancements are going to determine how long we use it. And that doesn't matter if there's a pipeline in the ground or not. It'll stop being used when the, when the economics drive it out of business. That's part one of my interview with the uh, Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, when we come back, we'll ask him or you'll hear the second part of the interview. And some of it has to do with the province of Quebec. Don't go away. Back to the interview with the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, on this, the ending of the first week of the 2019 federal election campaign. Premier Higgs, do you, do you believe the Prime Minister that Justin Trudeau is committed to seeing TMX, Trans Mountain Extension, to be completed or even begun. Do you believe he's committed to that? No, I don't. I don't. It, it's He had to decide, uh, you know, in the case of trying to appease development uh, with Alberta losing $200, uh, um, 200 billion in, in investment. Um, you know, I see here on this side of the, of the, of the country, in, in New Brunswick, we're 90% export-driven, our province, and, and we're seeing that, you know, we're, the softer lumber is a big issue for us in the tariffs. Everything we do uh, is, is based on our competition that we're meeting primarily in the U.S. We are economically disadvantaging our country um, across the country with our nearest competitor, the U.S. And so we can talk about diversifying our economy, and I, and I believe in that, and I believe moving in that trail, and I believe in using our natural resources to fund it. And, and that's where I see this, th this shouldn't be a debate. This should be a, a common uh, kind of focus from political leaders that we're going to have a long-term strategy here. Not an election strategy, not a strategy for the next month to try to buy an election. I mean, I've heard, you know, we've talked about this being a credit card election. Well, that's what it'll be. It'll be promise everything to everybody and forget about how the, the economy survives to pay for it. You know, it's amazing to me. We have so many people. I think a consumer debt in this country is more than a trillion dollars. It's amazing to me that people don't really put together the fact that if you can't borrow on the individual level and on the family level and make it work, just to indiscriminately borrow, you have to understand you can't do it on the national level either. Well, it's, that's, that's very true. But, the, but the, the general populace would say, well, you know, if someone brings that reality to focus, and then someone else and says, oh, well, don't worry, follow me, I'll just spend and, and buy whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, how long can you play Santa Claus and, and, and get away with it? We know that's the reality in everyone's private home. But for some reason, many people disconnect on the government side. And how many times do we hear the phrase, oh, government will pay for it? Right. I mean, I'm in a situation right now where I'm dealing with the with the unions, and I'm saying, you know, to them, help, um, you know, help me, help you, because we we can't afford what what they're proposing now. will add another 300 million to our bottom line 
in the province with the other negotiations coming. And and I we're taxed out here. I just it's the taxpayers that are funding this. We just can't th- keep bringing this around to a circle, and and just tax people more. And I know there's a you know there's a phrase here that was used back in the previous government, and I've seen it used federally. Well, tax the richest. But you know what happens? They 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 take their money elsewhere. Of course they do. Yeah. And and so you lose the investment. You lose the the the, the structure because there's all kinds of ways to creatively transfer profits and. And then who loses? We lose. And the UK is a perfect example of that because that's exactly what happened there when they decided some years ago to overly tax the billionaires. Premier, could we speak to the developments in the SNC-Lavalin scandal? I'd like your thoughts on this. Mr. Trudeau refuses to lift the ban on cabinet confidentiality, while the RCMP has this week spoken with Jody Wilson-Raybould. What do you think about this? Well, of course he's refusing to do it because there's something there to hide. And, and you know, you only refuse to do something. Uh, with either you can back, back it up with facts of, okay, why am I doing this and here are the reasons, or you can subjectively say, no, I don't want to do that. So he's subjectively saying, I don't want to do that because basically there's something there to hide, or, or why wouldn't you open it up in this discussion? Because it, it, it's real. The situation was he tried to influence the, you know, the, the, the laws of the land, and, 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 and he doesn't want to just come right out and admit it. And to say that, you know, I'll use the caption, I'll fight for jobs. Well, you know, you might fight for jobs in one location, but you've got a country here we're talking about. And, and you certainly haven't fought for jobs in other provinces. So it, it's like uh, this, this is, a again, uh, uh, I, I can understand why he's saying no, because there's something there to hide. The ethics commissioner, the parliamentary ethics commissioner, convicted the, uh, the prime minister once again of violating uh, ethics, uh, did not have access to the people he needs to have access to, and that's what we just spoke about. Um, But also the RCMP, we have our national police pausing their review of the SNC situation for the duration of the election. I find that deeply disturbing. It's very disturbing, and and I I guess the fact they put it on the table and made made it clear that they're positive for the election, I hope the electorate will read something into that. That, that uh, you know, okay, they said they don't want to influence the election. But you know if somebody's guilty, the election should be influenced because uh, that, that should define who's going to run our country, if there's uh, integrity there involved or if there's not. And, and if, if we're going to, uh, you know, be in a position where the smoke and mirror thing works, once again, we just keep sliding down the slippery slope. Two more questions for you, Premier, and thank you for the time. Uh, Atlantic Canada delivered all 30 seats in the four provinces to Trudeau and the Liberals in 2015. What are you expecting on the 21st of October? Well, I'm certainly not expecting that. Um, I, I would anticipate a, a, a major reversal. Um, you know, I, I don't expect a, you know entire sweep the other way, but I expect it to go back towards more traditional lines for at the very least. And uh, in New Brunswick, I you know I, I don't know that it's whether I have a projection or not, but I, I would certainly think it would be a split at the very least. Premier, the last question for you. Where do you believe the, the focus should be in this election campaign as we head toward the 21st of October? What do we all need to think about? We need to be have the frank discussion about what's, what we're facing as a, as a country, as a nation. And, and I, I know in, here in the province, I've, been, I've taken the position of here's what I'm facing as a province. Here's the reality of what we have. And you know, if the voters say no, I just want people to promise me more. Then, then I'm not, I'm not the person. Anybody running, and I, uh, in this case, we're talking about the federal election. They need to be running with a conviction of why they're there, and they're there to not just have a, a term in office. 
they're there to have a have a uh, chance to really have a course correction for our country. And I don't think we've ever had a time in the history, certainly in my lifetime, when I've seen such a a um, change in the in the fabric of our country than I have in the last four years, and a change that I would say is not in a positive direction. So to go back what you said to us uh, just before Christmas of last year, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. Absolutely, absolutely, and and we have to think as one, and and that means some provinces, you know, and 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 and, and I've said you you've heard me say this before in terms of transfer payments. I mean, I I am a province. It's about thirty percent of the budget is is related to transfers, and and I need them, you know, in order to make ends meet. But that that doesn't mean I don't want to pursue our gas industry here, because I believe if if I'm taking money from a province that that is in that industry and I have that potential, then. I should be, I should either be, uh, it should be a system of, of where you recognize that you have a potential and you're not fulfilling that, so your transfer payments reflect that. And I think the biggest thing that needs to change is the reality of if there's money flowing into a province and you're not prepared to contribute on the behalf of the entire country, then there seems to be a change to how that money is, is calculated. Message to Quebec. It is. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you. Nice talking to you as well. He's blunt. Uh, The message to Quebec, obviously very direct from Premier Blaine Higgs. So uh, the rally uh, gets underway shortly. It's either just underway or gets underway shortly in Mississauga, Ontario, her hometown where the mayor is going to provide her with a key to the city. They're also going to name a street after Bianca. And uh, we're going to be speaking with Global News reporter, Toronto reporter, Albert Delitala, who is at the rally. He'll be joining us a little later on this hour. Also this hour, Mike Sloan, who uh, tweets at Mike London Can. Mike London Can. Uh, Mike is living in uh, London, Ontario. He's battling cancer, which is going to take his life. And he's decided to share the entire experience on Twitter. That's a very gutsy thing to do, very courageous thing to do, helping a lot of people. Uh, Mike tweets about anything and everything, and uh, he'll certainly get your attention, but I know he's helping people, not just people who are battling cancer, but also caregivers. Just an amazing, I just think what he's doing is amazing, and we'll talk to him uh, in, a sh- in a little bit. Now, there's a, a line in... Uh, In a newspaper in the UK, um, and let me just find the line. It's actually in the news story or in in the blog piece that my guest wrote, and it's the independent newspaper, and the line is, rather than being taboo, being child free is something that should be celebrated and valued. People who don't have children benefit our environment more than any campaign. It's time to celebrate. That is from the Independent, and again, it's in a it's in a blog piece that was written by uh, our guest uh, Craig uh, Klugman, who is a bioethicist at DePaul University in Chicago. The blog is Climate Change and Bioethics. Do we have a duty to not procreate? Professor Klugman, thank you very much for the time. It's good talking to you. I, I mean, we had a brief chat off the air earlier today, and I'm fascinated by this because. It's an issue that generates a tremendous amount of response, and it's very polarized response, which is probably not surprising. 
And if I may, I just want to start, in not in the middle, but on page two of your piece, with a line where you ask, how did this get started? So how did it get started? Um, how did this idea get started? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, hey, we're, we're, we're discussing, people are discussing it very, very seriously. Yeah, no, um, it starts in the 1970s when uh, Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich comes out with this book, The Population Bomb, and he says, hey, look, we are exploding. Uh, It took us, you know, 50,000 years to hit a billion people, and it took us much shorter time to hit 2 billion, and we're at 7.5 billion today. We'll be 8 billion in a year or two. And we are outstripping the capacity of our planet. Um, Ehrlich was most concerned with food supply. He thought that we were not going to be able to create enough food to maintain our population and there would be mass starvation. And it turned out he was wrong. Uh, It was clear he was wrong about 10 years after he published because we developed all sorts of new technologies and new farming techniques that allowed us to get more nutrition out of an acre of land. But the idea that humans have a large impact on the environment is sort of what has stuck. And it is now being revisited again in a modern era where we're facing climate issues. So uh, as I read in your blog piece, which is a fascinating read and has generated a great deal of opinion uh, globally, the idea or the, the sense that there's a duty to not procreate, and I know people are just gritting their teeth. Some people are gritting their teeth. Even my, I just saying that about your blog piece. But the argument that's made is that this is because there are so many billions of humans on the planet that we're crowding other species into extinction and raising the temperature of the planet by meeting the societal needs of billions of humans. Uh, okay, so now what are the current fundamental questions then surrounding the ethics discussion around procreation or having children. What's the ethical debate about now in 2019? Well, the interesting thing is that in bioethics, this hasn't really been talked about very much, which is one reason that I wrote this piece to Mm -hmm. sort of get people thinking about this issue and thinking about our impact. I mean, if you think about it, we've hit some milestones this year. We crossed 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which is a huge stepping stone. It was sort of put out there as, you know, we're in danger if we ever cross this. We know that the five hottest years in all of human history have been the last five years. That July was the hottest month ever recorded. That, you know, Arctic sea sea ice is at its lowest level ever. We're having floods and storms, glaciers and sea ice are melting faster than anybody predicted. Sea levels are rising. And so... The one, the one factor we know that's causing this, that scientists have consensus agreement on, is that it's human activity and that the, the planet is warming as a result of us burning fossil fuels and knocking down forests. Um, the Amazon forests are burning. The Scandinavian forests are burning. And we are just, you know, for every human being, we want to have a good life. We want to be able to have good food on our table and we want to be able to live in a nice house. And all those take resources and they take space. And so the more people you have, the more pressure you have on the planet. Okay, um, so let me let me just jump in here for a second. You said consensus, uh, there's a science consensus or a consensus among scientists. What I will hear back at, uh, directed toward you, and I'll direct it to you as well, is 
How can there be a consensus among scientists? Because scientists are always looking for new frontiers, new borders, new answers, new challenges. Let me just take this a little step further. Uh, people who challenge the IPCC and their projections of dire consequences of global warming, now called climate change, they're called deniers. But the deniers remember the email scandal involving leading proponents, scientific proponents of global warming. And there are examples of previous doomsday time limits in the late 90s. The deadline was 10, 10 years. Polar bears are said to be the canaries in the coal mines. Now, Professor, I've spoken with a leading Canadian expert on polar bears, as well as an Inuit expert on the bears, and they argued on the air that polar po bear populations are strong and growing. So the, I, let me get to the question I'm asking here is, has the global warming or the climate change argument been convincingly made and sufficiently so that people will, and let's go back to the genesis of our discussion, feel they should cut back on having kids? Well, I think the you know there there are facts. The populations are decreased. You know, we these are facts, and you can say you don't want to accept the facts, you don't believe in the facts, but the facts are still there. Now, this is a scientist who actually counts the bears and lives among the bears who gave me that information. Okay, but I can probably show you a dozen other people who would say otherwise. Um, you know, the the ethics. To get back to the question of of procreation, right. there are certain things that we know have changed. Right? We know that thing, there things are warming. We know that the more humans there are, there's more of an impact on the environment. Um, is the the you know the UN statement that we have 11 years left before we have irreversible damage? They're not saying 11 years and you know we have the apocalypse. 11 years and we have irreversible damage. Is that going to happen? Well, it's impossible to predict the future, right? But what we can say is that, you know, we need to make take actions to sort of prevent the damage from getting far worse. From now, I understand. The, when, when, I'm, when I bring these points up, if right. it's going to be a, a discussion or a debate or uh, mm -hmm. some sort of try to reach some ethical consensus on what the right thing to do is, there have to be both sides of an issue have to be brought forward so that there's oh, some sort of discussion point that we're not all sitting in the corner nodding about the same things. We have to determine that if we're going to take an action, there has to be a need for it. Right? Given. So if we, we want to sit around and look at our scientific articles and evidence, we can do that. But you know, we're on a radio show, so we don't exactly have the, no, we don't. the many weeks that would take. No. Um, you know, and what I, what I propose is not that we suddenly stop procreating, but that we think about the norms in Western civilization have been that you should have children. Right. And you should leave um, your children are your legacy, and they carry on your, your ideals and your values and into the world. And I'm saying, and a lot of other writers are saying, let's question this assumption that maybe having more children isn't the best way to go. I mean, a lot of things have changed in our, in our world that we don't have to even think about predicting the future. So, you know, 100 years ago, you would have a number of children, but most of them would not survive to adulthood. Right. I'm also not saying that we need to have sort of what China did and say it's a one-child policy. In the I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, um, it worked for them. They did. They had massive uh, population growth. They instituted this policy in the late 1970s, and they did decrease their growth substantially. They have since now... At a societal cost. There, has been, there was a huge cost. Right. I don't think it's a cost that we would accept in uh, democratic countries, right. and nor would it be one that I Professor, would let me get there. you to hold on. I have to take a break. We'll come back, and we'll talk more with uh, Professor Craig Klugman about this issue, the question about do, should people have, must people have fewer children 
uh, because of the climate issue, uh, because of climate change or a climate crisis. Must people have fewer children because fewer, more children or more humans on the planet means more resources are being used. And I don't need to put the entire scenario before you because you can deduce that for yourself. We'll come back and we'll talk more with the professor on, uh, on, this, on this issue. Do we have the duty to not procreate? Professor Craig Klugman, Ph.D. ethics professor at DePaul University in Chicago. Send emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com and uh, Twitter is at the Roy Green Show, at the Roy Green Show. The blog is at uh, my webpage, RoyGreenShow.com. And uh, if you didn't hear the whole conversation that I'm having with Professor Craig Klugman, uh, you will be able to listen to it on the uh, on the uh, podcast on the webpage at uh, RoyGreenShow.com, where you can subscribe as well. We're talking about the issue about procreation, having kids. And uh, the piece, the blog piece by Professor Klugman, was climate change and bioethics, do we have a duty to not procreate? So the question is about having fewer or no children in order to mitigate against climate change. There's no shortage of opinion. If I were to open the phone lines, you and I could probably take calls for the next three weeks, Professor <laughs> Klugman. But you write, let me, let me, in the few minutes we have, we have about five minutes left. You write about the carrot and the stick approach as sure. far as, as far as accomplishing an objective that I think you believe is, you believe it's necessary, right? I believe this is a step we need to consider, that we have to take a, a multi-pronged approach. So a lot of people have said, well, we're just going to have technology that's going to solve this. We'll do carbon capture and methane capture. And I think it's one approach we definitely need to be going. But, you know, if we want to have less pressure on the environment, then there very simply probably needs to be less of us. And that's because there are more of us, and we have been expanding at a tremendous rate, the global population has increased at a tremendous rate and is projected to continue to do so. We will continue to need more of the Earth's resources. And then the next step in that argument is that would drive up the uh, the climate crisis or the climate issue even further. So, so right. what, I mean, what makes sense? Do we know? Is there any, 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 any concept of what would make sense for people if the one child uh, per family uh, dictum out of China isn't going to fly in our societies and it won't? What makes sense? Well, I think it's personal choice. So, you know, we set up a, uh, we know that in Western countries, in, you know, highly developed countries, that the birth rate has dropped. Uh, in Canada, it has been um, below replacement value. So the, re, the, the number of children you would need to have to keep the population constant, it's been below that for 40 years. And the only reason that the Canadian population has been increasing is through immigration. And so what are the things that have made people choose to have fewer children? And part of it has been that we've uh, had an increased um, incomes, that we have more people, women and, and husbands in two couples that are getting more educated. They are working more in the workforce. We know that they're... Um, so I have to, because of the time limitations, I have to th throw in this question. Are we talking about limiting children uh, in families in first world countries or globally? Because in many societies, it's not going to be accepted very, very happily because uh, culturally, people want to have children because they need the children later on in life to, to help them when they're in old age. 
They do. So we need to think of ways that we can take care of people in old age. We need to weigh, think of ways that we can have people have a meaningful relationship with younger generations without it being their own child. And what I'm suggesting is we look at what's happened naturally in high-income countries that has led to a lower birth rate. If we just think about some culture change that will lead to those situations, it may happen naturally without having to tell people what they have to do or not do. What do you expect will happen? Is that a fair question um, to ask you? <laughs> I think it's a fair <laughs> question. Uh, I am not optimistic at this point in time, especially in this country. Um, and I, I've, I think we're going to kind of keep pushing this down the road until we get a crisis situation, because this, this proposal, I mean, developing technologies, limit, having a natural limiting or decreasing in population rate increase, that all takes planning and it takes time and it takes decades in advance. And if we have a clock of uh, 11 years or if it's longer than that, then we don't have time to sit here and wait. We need to take action. And if we just kind of kick the can down the road, and I think things are probably getting worse in environmental policy, especially here in the U.S., then um, it's just going to be worse when we, when we actually have to come face-to-face -to, -face to it and can't just um, hem and haw anymore. If you ask your colleagues to do what you're suggesting, and that is to have fewer children to help the environment and the global reality, what do you think your colleagues would say? I think we, they would be supportive, actually. Um, I can tell you among the people that I work with, they have, most have uh, one or none children. There are a few that have two. I don't know anybody personally who has more than two children. Well, in this world, it's sometimes difficult to afford two kids. Well, that's the thing. Let alone more. $260,000 a year uh, to raise a child all over its lifetime in Canada, right? Women are having their children at older ages. People are getting married at older ages. So... From a first world perspective, this makes sense. It's a logical choice. What if we set up these situations in other parts of the world where we educate? Made it okay, we'll have to. We'll have to. Kids. We'll have to have that discussion another day because we've literally okay. run up against the, the <laughs> clock wall. But I thank you for coming on the air. You're certainly generating a lot of attention on my email account. That's the goal, to let people have a conversation about this. Thank you, Professor Klugman. Thanks very much. Right, thank you, Professor Craig Klugman from DePaul University in Chicago. All right. Um, we're going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to speak with um, with Mike Sloan in London, Ontario. And uh, Mike is on Twitter, at Mike London Can. And Mike is battling cancer, um, terminal cancer, and he's sharing the experience on his Twitter account. It's quite remarkable. And I know he's helping a lot of people. Let's get back to the election and specifically to the province of Quebec and what the intentions of Quebecers are for the 21st of October. A poll of Quebecers was conducted by Forum Research and joining us is the president of Forum Research, Lauren Bozanoff. Lauren, thank you very much uh, for the time today. Can I start by asking you this? What are the issues that are most significant to the people of the province of Quebec? Well, you know what? This really stands out, um, particularly in, in Quebec, but this is the year of the environment, and it's by far the number one issue, the election issue in, in, in Quebec. It's at about 35% saying it's, it's the issue that they're going to base their vote on. Okay, so the environment's number one. Where's the economy come in? Is that next? It is. You know, usually the economy's number one. It's, it's, it's way back. It's at 22%. 
And then after that, in the other perennial health care, it's at 16%. But this number on the environment, from when we look at our, our national polls, is the highest in Quebec. They're the most environmentally um, conscious uh, province or region of the country right now. Well, it's good to know that. So let's take that piece of information and take a look at some other factors here. Quebec and Ontario have the largest clout as far as provinces are concerned, with the numbers of MPs each province will send to uh, Ottawa. Will Quebec's voters ultimately, do you think, be the ones who deliver or deny power to the parties? Well, you know, it's a huge block, and um, it, can, it can switch. So we saw the orange crush year, a few years ago. So, yeah. so we know Quebec, Quebec, Quebec can, can swing. Right now, though, it's holding pretty steady for the Liberals. So um, I think it's going to be one of the keystones of the Liberal strategy to do well in Quebec. So what do the numbers show you? What, are, what specifically are you seeing for the parties in Quebec? So in Quebec, we had the Liberals ahead, well ahead, 37%. That's from that provincial poll. And when we look at the last federal poll, which was done a couple of days ago, they're up to 40%. They are dominating, and they are projected right now to get about two-thirds of the seats. In second place, we have the Tories. They're at 21%. And then we have the BQ at 18%. Then the other parties fall off. And in that, in that Quebec poll, we had the Greens at at nine, actually ahead of the NDP who are at uh, eight, and then we've got the People's Party at four. So just a few months ago, the Conservatives were either neck and neck or or ahead of the Liberals in Quebec, right? Yeah, you know, since the Lavalin thing (laughs) unfolded, it's kind of weird way, the way it went on and on and on and so forth. Um, It turns out that the Lavalin uh, thing hasn't really bothered Quebecers, and um, a lot of Quebecers say they, they're, they're aware of the commissioner's report and, and, and up to date on, on all that stuff. But most Quebecers are saying it's not going to affect how they plan to vote. And in fact, it might actually have helped the Liberals in the end. I know it sounds kind of strange to say that. Hmm. Um, is that support for the Liberals solid in, in Quebec? Can they count on maybe somewhere near 40%? Because that would be a big number of seats they would pull out of that province. It is, it is a lot of seats, but, you know, Quebec kind of moves as a block. And right now it's kind of sitting red in, in color with the Liberals. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it, 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 if, 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 a, if a blue wave hits the country, that could flip and they could join, you know, join, jo- join uh, the rest of the country. But right now they're kind of marching to their own drummer. You know, Quebecers tend to like uh, a prime minister from Quebec, mm-hmm. whether it's a liberal or a conservative like Mulroney. <laughs> they seem to go for um, prime ministers from, from Quebec, or, or we could say that prime ministers from Quebec are better able to understand the province. Yeah, maybe um, so. so. So we're seeing that right now, I think. And SNC-Lavalin is a Quebec company, so maybe some Quebec voters, maybe many Quebec voters are saying, hey, this is one of our companies, don't mess with them. Yeah, it's an iconic company, and, you know, Trudeau's been pushing the line, it's about jobs, and he was trying to protect jobs, and that could really resonate in, in Quebec, so... I think that's sort of taking the sting out of the Lavalin thing in Quebec, not in the rest of the country, but in Quebec are seem to be buying that argument. Yeah, so they're not really buying into the uh, the position that they're going to be criminally prosecuted for trying to, for, for well, the charges uh, trying to bribe Libyan officials over a 10 or 11 year period. And some of that includes some $2 million for the son of the former dictator, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, and uh, entertaining him with prostitutes and parties in, in this country. That's not resonating in Quebec. Despite everything you just said, no, it's not. <laughs> it's amazing. That really is amazing. All right, Lauren, thank you very much. Good talking to you always. Appreciate the time.
All right. Thank you. Lauren Bozanoff, the uh, president of Forum Research. But, as he says, it could flip. And I think that's this, this whole country is uh, may be ready to surprise a lot of people on the 21st of October. It may just happen. It's a night that we're likely not to forget. When we went into that night, those of you, those of us were alive in 1993 and remember the election, we knew Kim Campbell and the Conservatives weren't going to do anywhere near as well as they'd done in the previous election, where under Mulroney they'd had a majority government, to be, but to be reduced to two seats as they were, two seats. It was absolute annihilation. I don't know if anything similar is waiting for the 25th of October. I've wondered often how do political parties, and we will get to other issues here, but it is the end of the first week of the election, how do political parties change gear in the middle of an election? When something happens, when something goes sideways for them, when something is revealed about their parties or about their leader or about somebody significant in the party or positions they've taken or, you know, things that they've shoved to the side that we all ought to know about, and it gets the public's attention and it starts to negatively affect the party, how do they change gear in the middle of of an election? We're going to ask a man who knows about political elections. He's run in a number of them. He's won a number of them. He's the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, our good friend and blogger Brian Peckford. We'll ask Mr. Peckford about what happens inside a political party when things start to slide off the rails during an election campaign. All right, so the story that's coming out of the United States, while Canada celebrates Bianca Andreescu's victory at the U.S. Open Tennis Championship, the NFL enters week two with another in the seemingly never-ending stream of accusations against players. This time, it's New England Patriots superstar wide receiver Antonio Brown accused of rape, which Brown denies, tweets, uh, or at least uh, texts, uh, or some of his texts to his alleged victim have been released. There's also a story that uh, his representatives agreed to a $2 million settlement. That's one story that's coming out, that on Friday, Brown finally said, I'm not paying it. And so now the uh, the accuser is going to appear before the uh, NFL, and Mr. Brown could be in some significant trouble. Dan Lust is a sports attorney for the law firm of Goldberg Segala in the United States. He joins us on The Green Show. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Roy. I'm happy, uh, happy to uh, be able to talk about this uh, developing issue. So, look, Antonio Brown's history is not the best. He's accused of nearly killing a toddler after throwing furniture off his 14th floor balcony. He, he said somebody else did that, but he agreed to pay the child's college fund to settle the lawsuit. He was found guilty of reckless driving, drove over 100 miles an hour toward the stadium in Pittsburgh for a game, and now he's accused of rape by Brittany Taylor in that civil lawsuit. Why is he playing today? Why are the uh, Patriots playing him? And what's your perspective as a sports lawyer? So uh, for your listeners that don't know, I'll give you a brief timeline. And I think that the timeline is going to kind of explain why the NFL allowed this to happen. So um, on Tuesday uh, of last week, on September 10th, uh, there was, you know, at the middle of the night, there was a civil lawsuit filed uh, alleging uh, that Brown had, uh, you know, committed sexual assault on Brittany Taylor, who was his trainer. Uh, and those acts occurred from 2017, uh, you know, until late 2018. So uh, the timing of this lawsuit, uh, you know, I think I'll raise some eyebrows over here because this came, the filing, when Antonio Brown is at the pinnacle of the sports world. And not just sports, he's front page material, you know, to the extent 
my wife, who's not a sports fan, she now knows who Antonio Brown is. So for the lawsuit to be filed on the Tuesday, right when he's preparing for his debut with the Patriots after he, you know, we can get into that, but he, he kind of worked his way out and kind of gamed the system to get out of Oakland, a, you know, a subpar team to get to the best team in football, the Patriots. So just when everyone thought that Antonio Brown was going to walk off scot-free, you know, he had an issue with his helmet, he gets a helmet deal. He has an issue with the Raiders, he gets put on the best team. Just when he's about to be in the clear is when this lawsuit comes. And I think the NFL, and we can get into this, Roy, I think the NFL read into there, some, there was some, dicti- some vindictiveness and a kind of personal uh, nature on the timing of this lawsuit. Um, the fact that the lawsuit exists, the fact that his uh, text messages to the young woman have been made public, and they're pretty uh, grotesque to read, uh, given the challenges the NFL is facing with all, you know, constant stories about players in trouble, some of them uh, dealing with felony charges, others being convicted of felony offenses, uh, I don't understand at all why, and particularly the, 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 the Patriots, why they're playing him. Why not just wait a week and say, let's get, this, let's get this somewhat under, not under control, but let's get some more information before we put the guy on the field. No, I, I'm with you. So uh, before we, so we heard word on Thursday that the NFL was not going to place him on the commissioner's exempt list, which is basically kind of this gray zone. You're in limbo. You're getting paid, but you can't see the field. I had predicted that that would happen before Sunday. Mm-hmm. So when the NFL made this announcement that they were not going to place him on the exempt list, I wanted to look at the reasoning as to why they announced it. So what they said is that at this point, it's just a civil complaint. There's actually no criminal investigation pending in Pittsburgh, where some of the acts occurred, in Florida, where, where Brown also has a home. So ne- no, neither of those two local authorities were investigating it. So that sounds strange, but in, in terms of the law, it's just really a mere formality. So what the police have come out and said, at the end of the day, there's a civil lawsuit filed, but the victim here, the alleged victim, hadn't gone through the procedure of filing a simple criminal complaint with either of those two um, authorities. And, you know, there's a, if you get into a car accident, there's a police report, the police write it up. Filing a criminal complaint is a very easy uh, mechanism. No, I understand. There's no, it's, not, it's unclear why it wasn't done, but the police just said once a cr- criminal complaint is filed, we'll launch an investigation. And if you take the NFL at its word, the second that an investigation is started, uh, then they have the right to place them on the commission's exemplars. And, Roy, I'll just tell you one other piece of just NFL history. Never in the history of the NFL has someone been placed on the commissioner's exempt list without a criminal investigation pending. And that would be kind of an independent third body, like the DA's office or even a grand jury, the charges were coming. So it's just kind of a formality. And unfortunate for the NFL, we're here on Sunday again talking about Antonio Brown. Again, and he's made headlines everywhere. Wherever the Patriots go, the headline's going to be Antonio Brown, not the team. And, uh, you know, it doesn't help that he uh, played very well today. He was Tom Brady's favorite target. Uh, already has a touchdown on the board. So you know that's going to play into it. He's, he's not going away quietly. How do you think this is going to play itself out? The interesting thing here, and, and the reason I mentioned that this is a civil lawsuit and the timing of this, so uh, we have a uh, there's statute of limitations on intentional torts, so one of those being sexual assault. In the state of Florida where this complaint was filed, there's a four-year statute of limitations. And when that just that means in, in legalese, you have a four-year deadline from when the act occurred to when you, you have to file suit by. So because these, these allegations started in, in 2017, that deadline doesn't run until 2021. So I think what the NFL read into here 
And, and in addition, I mean, Brown put out a statement that some of these, I mean, he said everything was consensual. He denies that anything was, you know, and, and the allegations are heinous, but he's saying it was consensual. So what we really have here is that he said, she said. And if you're just reading from a high level from the outside, the timing is a little suspect here because there's, the plaintiff was against no, uh, not up against the deadline to file suit. And the suit comes again right when Brown has been trending on Twitter for two weeks straight. Uh, and I think what the NFL read into is that there's there's more here to investigate. And, and Roy, tomorrow is a big day because the NFL is meeting with the victim, Brittany Taylor, in, in New York City. Right. And I believe another player, she says, was in the house when it took place. Yes. Uh, so I had the opportunity to read uh, this 15-page criminal complaint. That's that's very important here because, uh, you know, he said, she said is when you have a one-on-one scenario. Right. But if you have another NFL player who was witness to some of this, I mean, that's, this is going to take some time. You know, but once, you know, procedurally that the criminal complaint is filed, I think Antonio Brown does come off the field just so they can get this headache away. But until uh, this Brittany, Brittany Taylor and, and Roe, we didn't even mention, Brittany Taylor throughout all this is actually having her wedding uh, this past week. Yes, I heard that. So, yeah. so she's going to come back right after her wedding. And on Monday, she's meeting with the NFL. Right. So, you know, once she wraps that up, then she'll have to meet with her lawyers and see when and when and if they're going to file that criminal complaint. Dan, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate talking to you. Thank you. Of course, Roy. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Dan Lust is a sports attorney for the law firm of Goldberg Scagala in the United States on Antonio Brown. What happens inside a political party when things maybe start to go a little sideways during an election campaign, or how do political parties decide to change the messaging in the middle of a campaign? We're going to ask our good friend Brian Peckford about that, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, blogger at Peckford42 at uh, wordpress.com, .wordpress.com. Brian, thank you very much uh, for the time. I'm not suggesting that you at any time had to change messaging because you might have been in trouble in an election campaign. I'm not suggesting that at all. <laughs> never come, never even come to mind. No. <laughs> but how closely do political parties monitor public opinion during election campaigns? And then part B of that question, what do they look for? Well, uh, for, first of all, uh, there is no question that, uh, you know, even before the election was called for the last year or so, uh, the major political parties, especially the conservatives and the liberals, and quite likely the NDP too, if they have the money, uh, have been polling extensively throughout all of Canada, everywhere in Canada, and that they have built up a bank of uh, what's happening in all of these various regions and right down to a riding. So they know, uh, and they know what kind of uh, issues are uh, important in that particular area, that particular province, even that particular constituency. And they, that's fed through them, through their polling firms, also through their party organization. And they also have, you know, like they have two or three war rooms. One is more of a policy war room, and the other is a completely uh, political war room. And then they uh, come together as the election uh, is called and as things happen, and then they will adjust accordingly based upon what the new polling says or what feedback they're getting from the candidates in the party in that particular part of the country. So all of that information put together will cause them to decide to change, adjust, or abandon a position while a campaign's underway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the leader, quite likely with a, with a small group of people, uh, I guess in the prime minister's case, it was people from his office, as well as from the party, uh, will, will meet 
and say, look, here's the new data. You know, we, we just call this meeting almost like an emergency meeting, but these will, these will go on throughout the campaign while they're on the plane, while they're in the bus, whatever. And they'll have these meetings and say, here's what's going on here. Look, there's been a major shift in PEI or in New Brunswick or in western Newfoundland or in northern B.C., and we need to do something here to uh, offset what's happened, either by the criticism that the opposition has provided, which is having some uh, impact, or some particular problem with the party itself. So they'll immediately adjust, come up with a new message, come up with a new tactic, and try that within perhaps 10 or 15 hours from that. So it's very quick. Uh, uh, it's very, uh, uh, you know, nimble. They can move real fast. Uh, and this will happen throughout the campaign right up until polling day. Now, do you think the federal liberals are very carefully paying attention to the SNC-Lavalin uh, lifting cabinet confidence issue, or have they staked their position on that and will defend it? They'll, they've staked their position on it, they will defend it. I mean, unless there's something new that comes out, uh, I mean, enough has come out. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the Liberals should be uh, polling about 20% in the polls right now. I mean, uh, you know, we've got a party and a government that, that, that runs the government illegally. I mean, this is, this is fact. Like the guy from Surrey who called into your program a half an hour ago, you know, I'm, I'm going to vote on the facts. I'm going to vote on what's happened, what the party has done. But obviously, in the political climate that we're in right now in Canada, uh, this is being b- b- washed aside. And uh, as your person from Quebec just said, in Quebec, of course, it's even playing well. He's, I'm standing up for jobs. It doesn't make any difference that I'm breaking the law, that I'm being dishonest. If I stand up for jobs for Quebecers, that overrides honesty and integrity and doing things properly. Uh, in the rest of Canada, uh, in certain pockets, there may be uh, some concerns about SNC-Lavalin and how it's playing with their candidates. But overall, uh, it's obvious when, when that last thing happened, just the last week or so, on SNC-Lavalin, and, and uh, Mr. Trudeau came out and said, I'm for jobs, and I'm going to stick. The message was clear. They have polled this, uh, that they have found that if he uses that message, it'll work in Quebec, and obviously it works in other parts of Canada, or doesn't hurt him to the extent that he needs to do anything. And he's going to stay with that message all the way through the campaign. Boy, what a job-seeking campaign. Yes. For, for all political parties, they all they all do that. And you say that they, the Liberals should be way behind in the polling. Does that speak negatively about the leadership of the other parties, and maybe yes, one in no. particular? Uh, no question. No question. No question. And I think that this is where the, the, the disconnect is now happening in the country, uh, that one would think that uh, rather than be tied, that the Conservatives would have, you know, a significant lead, at least 8 to 10 percent lead, given the SNC thing alone, notwithstanding all the other promises they broke, like the deficit and all that, and the billions of dollars, notwithstanding that they've closed down the energy industry from a transmission point of view, all of these other things, uh, but, but, but they're not. And that tells you something, and it tells you that obviously the leadership of the Conservative Party and of the NDP Party in particular are not resonating with the voters. You know, uh, I asked you a question, and you've been listening to the show, so you heard how that went. And I asked you a question about whether, and this is based on a listener email, which I'm still having trouble finding in all this. There's so many emails that come in. I'll find it. But uh, the listener asked whether, um, whether, or made the point that we're probably all going to vote for, quote, the best of the worst. And so the political parties, I think, if, if that's the attitude, and we look at the Ipsos polling that we talked about last week, seems, yes. to, seems to underscore that, then the political parties benefit from low expectations. No question. No, no, no question. 
and, and Roy, you've really got to, uh, when, when I talk to people, like at, um, three or four at a time, where I can get into these things in a more detailed way, you, you see their eyes open up. It, 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 people don't really, re- even though the polling has been wrong, as like, who's going to win elections? Um, and, and there's lots of good reasons for that, technical and otherwise. The polling that now is being done, and was even done in my time, is frightening. How much they can tell you about a given writing and how the people are voting. I remember, to give the, uh, the, the listeners some idea, I remember one by-election that I ran, uh, and, we, and we had really good polling, and we were only like something like 20 or 30 votes out in the result of that election, based upon the polling. No kidding. Wow. That is, that is mind-boggling. It was mind-boggling. And it was, it was frightening even to me at the time. I, I just couldn't believe it. We had it down that cold. Now, it was a by-election. There was only one riding, and we understood the riding. The candidate understood the riding. We had a really good riding organization uh, and all the things going for us, even though we weren't supposed to win it. We did. Um, and, and we targeted it right down to one or two communities. And that's what did, this, did the thing. So they're all doing that then now, the political, the federal parties, they're all strategizing. Are they strategizing riding by riding and trying to determine which ridings they have a chance in and focus their attention on those ridings in particular? Totally. Totally. 100%. 100%. And if you watch these people, the leaders, as they go across the country right now, yeah. Sheer is in, in Surrey for a reason, right? Um, and, of course, Ontario being so large with so many seats, uh, you know, uh, Trudeau is going to be there with the new tennis star. Right. In, uh, in, uh, right? Why miss an opportunity? Why miss a, why miss a golden opportunity and, and build on that? So uh, no, no question. They have, their war room has everything broken down, this country broken down from Anuvik to, in, you know, to, to, uh, to Yellowknife to, uh, to Fino to Bonavista, all broken down. They know exactly what they're doing, where they've got to be, and they will change. They will change. And, and the, the key to this is a well-oiled machine. So uh, this riding expects you there next Wednesday. Yeah. And the leader's going to be there, and everybody's excited. Something comes up on Monday. Mm-hmm. They'll be on to that riding association. They'll be on to that candidate. And they will have twisted that, that he can't come for some <laughs> really reason. Hold that thought. Please hold and, that and, thought, and Brian. And the leader's gone somewhere else. And there will not be a bad okay. negative. Let me, get you to, let me just okay. get you to hold that thought for a second. We'll come back and we'll continue with this with the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's fascinating. How do the political parties work their way toward Election Day and how do they change things? And they can change on a dime. What we're finding out is real. I, I find it fascinating. I hope you do as well. Brian Peckford is my guest, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Peckford42.wordpress.com is where you can read the premier's excellent blogs. I really love your blogs, by the way. I think they're just they're just great. The subject you choose and and the opinions you put out there certainly get people thinking and 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 sharing. Well, they share their points of view with me, Brian. <laughs> people will send me an email saying, "Hey, do you know what he wrote today?" Yeah. So yeah, I'm getting a you know a, a large you know it's been growing and growing over the last couple of years. My blog has, and uh, right now, you know, per week, you know, I'm I'm up into the many thousands, and uh, I'm getting it not just from Canada and the United States but also from around the world. Very interesting. No, it's good stuff. It g- gets you thinking whether we agree or not individually. Exactly. It, it's, it's always exactly. good reading. Let me read you three, three emails that I got in the last 45 minutes as I've been hunting around for that original email. Uh, this is from Peter. Dear Roy, of course voting is about choosing the best of the worst. 
Elections are about each party wanting to win and not necessarily doing what is best for the country. Just like a trial, the defense and the prosecution are not interested in the truth. They're interested in winning. Yes, even the prosecution are focused on winning because it advances their careers. So there's one. From uh, Burnaby, British Columbia, Heineck uh, writes, Hi, Roy, good show. I will vote who, for who will do the least damage, not necessarily who speaks for me, because that's almost no one. And by the way, I'm taking these emails as they arrived in order. This is from Fred. Uh, being from Alberta, I already know my vote does not count, so it doesn't matter how I vote. It's not feeling for, sorry for ourselves. It's the reality we faced for a long time. So that's three emails in succession, Brian. And that goes to what you've just been talking to us about. Absolutely no question about it. There is, there is a feeling in the country, and, and it's true. It, it's valid that there isn't anybody now in the country who takes an idea or a group of ideas, uh, explores them, uh, explains them, and then goes out and tries to sell them. You know, years ago in school, back before my time even, there was a thing called rhetoric, right? And, and, and the business of being able to persuade people to a certain point of view based upon facts, based upon rational argument and so on. All of that's gone. All, everything now is just strategy and tactic through the, 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 the length of the campaign and even long before. Uh, and, I mean, the, the Trudeau's... Uh, view on, on SNC-Lavalin and jobs just tells you all you need to know about that. And, and I think it's very, very sad when a country uh, can find itself in a position whereby uh, the, the integrity of your leader, the honesty of your leader, comes second. And if he promises jobs, that comes first. So the, these three writers are uh, explaining, I think, something that happened in the United States on a larger scale during the Trump victory. There was a feeling that they were no longer valuable members of society and had any influence. And I think you see that manifested in those three emails you just read. The deplorables. The deplorables. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're just taken for granted. Everybody knows uh, that Alberta is going to vote the way it's going to vote because it feels like the federal government is not on their side. Everybody's going to vote for the Most are going to vote for the liberals in Quebec because they think the government is on their side. I mean, when, when, when a leader gets up and defends a Quebec com- company, even though it's been banned by the World Bank, I mean, you know, that's it. And, and, you know, somebody mentioned earlier about the candy. I mean, if somebody's giving you candy over and over again, and you love candy, mm-hmm. then it's quite likely you're going to vote for the person who gives you the most candy. Well, keep, keep in mind the OECD is uh, keeping an eye on developments on SNC-Lavalin because they're interested in the anti-bribery convention and SNC yes, is... down in Chile. They took yeah. them off a job down in Chile. But when, when we don't have to go any farther than the World Bank. The World Bank is a recognized international authority that's funded by all of the major uh, con- countries in the world, and they banned them for 10 years. But here, but, but, but Brian, from, from what I gather uh, from the pollsters and what I gather from, from uh, at least some... A reaction from from callers by way of emails, and and phone calls to the show, is that SNC uh, really resonates with a with a limited percentage of Canada's voters, and Absolutely. so if you find a strategy that will take you, that will soften the blow or soften the impact of SNC, if the Liberals are able to do that, then they've done their job. The other part B of this is, I've long felt that um, 
political parties try to keep their post-election plans not off the radar, maybe off the radar, some of them, but they certainly don't feature what their post-election plans are during election campaigns. It's the last thing they want to talk about. One of the great, one of the, the unsung components of election campaigning and policy camp- and the policies that are incorporated into the election campaign involves a group of people who know how to word, how to use language which reflects apparently a certain promise, but leaves enough wiggle room so that afterwards you can repeat that back to that person and say, no, that's not really what I said. I said we were going to perhaps go in that direction, but leave yourself enough wiggle room. And I remember that was starting to come on the scene when I was involved in politics. You have a special group of people. They're really special people. They're not your bureaucrats per se. They're not your political operatives per se. They're in-between people who know how to massage language to do what you need to do so that your promises don't come back to haunt you. Share a little more information with us, please, on how this internal polling and decision-making takes place. If your party is able during a by-election to do polling when you were premier, and you can be between, what did you say, 30 or 60 votes? Yep. Of, of calling it on the nose? Yes. Uh, voters don't really have a chance. No, exactly, exactly. And that was, that was haunting to me at the time, but it was true. It was true. We were able to come well below 100 votes. And wow. As a matter of fact, I think the day before or the day of polling day, my people said to me, we'll win that by 35, and we won it by 15, or we won it by 65. Wow. We were in 25 or 30 votes of what the group said we would win. And th- this is what, what happens, especially, in, and that was a by-election. But now, I mean, this is decades later, these parties have become extremely sophisticated. They have the money, and uh, they have very, very smart polling people who can break down British Columbia like you never, you, you wouldn't believe it if you saw it. And these are war rooms that the, each party has. Uh, where this stuff is fed into, into their pollsters, and then into their policy people, then into their political people, all three get together and amend the kind of uh, message you want to get out, if in fact you have to amend it. If, on the other hand, you don't have to amend it, and your message is really getting across, you change the wording to accelerate those positives that had that kind of really good reaction from the electorate. This happens on a daily basis. And are you planning on or are you counting on the electorate essentially reading the headline and maybe or listening to the story, the beginning of the story, watching the beginning of the televised report, there, just paying attention for the first 15 seconds or so and then mentally, mentally tuning much, out? How much, you'll never believe how much time goes into talking about the wording of that headline of that new press release and the first couple of sentences. And, and then they'll try to feed that in uh, to the media in a way where the media will carry that headline or that subheadline, one or the other. Without changing it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's done regularly, and there are people who are absolute experts at that. You know, it's interesting you say that because for years I've been saying media need to stop being essentially the public relations voice for political parties because the political party issues a news release and, and, and many media run it as a news story. It's not. It's not a news story. Absolutely it's, not. it's public relations. It's totally public relations. And they don't, sometimes they don't even read it. It's just produced verbatim, especially in a lot of the local papers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
uh, let's not forget about it. The local papers are still important in rural Canada. And most of the stuff that comes out of the parties goes to those uh, rural papers and is carried verbatim. Always a delight to speak with you, Premier. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Brian Peckford, peckford42.wordpress.com. Peckford42.wordpress.com is the Premier's blog. When we come back, the Antonio Brown saga just got more messy, and yet he's playing for the New England Patriots today. Stay with us. I uh, just uh, very recently found out about uh, Mike Sloan in London and uh, the fact that he is tweeting at Mike London can about his battle with cancer and uh, it's terminal. It's going to uh, take Mike's life, but he's sharing the experience on Twitter and uh, he's getting a tremendous amount of response to this. And I think it's it's frankly one of the most selfless and uh, in, in my thinking, one of the most brave things that I think anybody could do because He's helping people. He's helping a lot of people. He's helping people who are battling cancer, and he's helping people who are caregivers. And I have to tell you this. I want to tell you this uh, out of the gate, Mike. I uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for you. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you for having me on the program. Uh, you, you've known you're, you're, you're dying for how long? I, in February, it was confirmed that it was anaplastic thyroid cancer, which really is not a treatable cancer. And I'm sorry, you were told about a year ago? In, in February. In February of this year. But I lost, well, this is what happened to my voice in October. And my doctor felt it was probably some sort of infection or something like that. But as time went on, I got fed up with waiting for an ear, nose, and throat specialist, so I just went to the hospital, um, and they confirmed it. Okay. When, when, when you received the news, Mike, what was the reaction? How did you feel when you, when you got that news? Because you're sharing everything with people. I, I wasn't surprised, and the reason I wasn't surprised is it just seemed so improbable that I would have some kind of bronchial or something infection that would take away my voice for three months. Okay, so that that had happened. Your voice had been uh, taken away or was sort of getting weaker for a long period of time. And then you went to the doc and, and they provided you with the diagnosis. What, what options did they offer you as far as treatment was concerned? Well, it, it was kind of odd in, in, the, in this way that as soon as I got went to the hospital, Within 15 minutes, they said, we think you have cancer. And so then the next day, there was a CT scan. Then as soon as that was read by an ear, nose, and throat specialist, he called me to come to the hospital immediately. And he put a uh, scope down my throat with a light. And he said, this is what you've got. You've got anaplastic thyroid cancer. And here's the five-year outlook. And what was that five-year outlook? Well, it's, it's very poor. Like 50% of patients are dead within six months. Oh. 
But they offered you treatment options like chemotherapy, and, and you said no thanks. Yes, they did offer chemotherapy and radiation. And I may have decided to go with that if it had offered, if they had said, you know, this is a pretty treatable cancer, as, as we know, many, many cancers are, and people live for many years. That's just not the case here. So I just said to myself, I can't see going through that when it's not, when they were saying, you know, it may extend your life. It may extend That just wasn't good enough. Yeah. And you made the decision because you wanted to, I want to put words in your mouth, but this is what I gather from our conversation and what I've seen on Twitter. You were determined to get the maximum out of your life that you could. Making a decision just for yourself, you were going to get the maximum out of your life that you could without being subjected to chemotherapy and other therapies they offered. Well, exactly. It just, it didn't make sense to me if it didn't offer a substantial, you know, some sort of substantial reward in terms of time. Yeah. What was the doctor's reaction to your decision? It was, it was mixed. I did have the surgery. They did remove, I believe, a five centimeter tumor in my throat by the thyroid and some, uh, and some other things in there that were cancerous. The one word escapes me at the at the moment. But anyway, it was amazing. I had that and went home the next day and took one pain pill. It was it was virtually painless. Has it been that way? Has it been essentially painless as you've been living through this experience? It has been. I'm very lucky. I mean, I know my voice sounds terrible, but it's not painful to talk. What made you decide? Was there was there a moment? Was there a, an event? Was there a thought? Was what made you decide to share your experience of dying with the world on Twitter? Well, you know, Roy, it's I've always really enjoyed Twitter because you know it's a very free platform. You can say whatever you want, and I just sort of and maybe it was therapeutic for me. I didn't really think about it, but I just sort of shared the details. And I noticed people seemed to be curious and interested about it. So I kind of said, well, I guess I'll just keep talking about it. You've had a, you've had a lot of response from, from, many, from many people. And, and, and I've been reading uh, about some of, uh, some of the response. I've been reading your tweets, going back and reading as much as I can. There are tweets, by the way, that you, uh, that you enter that make me laugh, and I feel kind of guilty about laughing. And then I realize that's what he wants me to do. That's why, that's why he's got that tweet in there. And, and there are tweets that you write that I think, why the hell would Mike do that? And because it's your life, and you're doing, and you're tweeting what you're, what you're living and what your experience is. You know, I, I know some people are troubled by the jokes that I tell her perhaps don't understand them, but I really feel, of course, this is a serious problem, right? and it's going to end my life, but I'm also not going to, you know, sort of curl up into a ball and, you know, cry. There are funny moments. There are legitimately funny moments. I'm, I, you, know, you just amaze me. You really do. Um, what are you hearing back? 
from people who are living with cancer. What what is there a consensus message? What sorts of what sorts of messages and responses are you getting, Mike? I'm just getting piles of messages, and and Roy, only one has been negative. Uh, all of them have been positive from different angles. Like one gentleman from Alberta emailed me, and he said, "My mother found out that she has, I believe it was colon cancer, and a very she's got only got months as well." And he sent me her reaction, and he and her reaction was someone speaking my language. Yeah. which was about how I'm making the best of the time that's left and not spending a whole lot of time in doctor's offices searching for a cure that may not exist. How old are you, Mike? I'm 49. Oh, that's so young. It really is, with cancer, it, it, there's nobody, probably nobody listening to this program right now and I imagine there are going to be people who are in tears listening to what you're saying, and you'll be hearing from a maybe a whole new set of um, followers on on Twitter as people become on listening to this program become aware of you if they're not already at Mike London can is uh, Mike's Twitter handle. Uh, you're helping you're helping uh, cancer patients. I'm I'm curious though. What what are they what is what are they uh, what are you God I'm having trouble with this what are they what are they tweeting what are they telling you have you have you had some some personal conversations with anybody Oh absolutely absolutely I I'm I'm very uncomfortable with this idea or notion that I'm helping people because that was never my intention but there's no way when people send you these notes telling you about they're really horrifying cancer experiences. There's no way I could not reply and just say, you know, you have to make your cho- your treatment choices, but if there's anything I can recommend, get up every day and realize that something positive will come out of it. Yeah. And just today, if I may say, just a half hour before you, call your, you called the neighbor next door, brought over some banana bread and fresh lasagna she'd made. Nice. You know, so this, it's like, it's just, it's unbelievable how every day there's just something great that happens. So I I just refuse to get down about it. So are you able to, uh, how how normal a day, normal is subjective, of course, but how, how regular a day are you able to to live? Does it depend on the day? Does it depend on how you feel? And when you get up in the morning, uh, can you plan your day? How's it How's it work out? It's It's not bad. I'm getting much more tired than I was earlier, and and I can see well. And just today, I saw my pharmacy assistant at the grocery store, and he said, "Oh my God, Mike, you're losing so much weight," but not unexpected given the given the prognosis. But, uh, you know, some days I feel like doing more than others. Yeah. And I just sort of gauge it by how I feel. Here's the question I don't want to ask, but I have to ask it. Um, how much time have they told you you have? Well, last week the, the palliative care doctor said probably between six to ten weeks. So I guess where I using 
a calendar that would now be down to five to nine weeks. Hmm. Hang on, hang on, Mike. We'll come back. Wow. Um, his name is Mike Sloan. He's in London. And uh, on Twitter, he's at Mike London Can. So M I K E L O N D O N C A N. I'm speaking with uh, Mike Sloan in uh, London, Ontario. His Twitter handle is at Mike London Can. At Mike London Can. And uh, as you know, if you've been listening to us, Mike is battling cancer, and uh, his doctors have given him five to six weeks maybe to live with this condition. And uh, and yet, Mike, when I'm reading your, uh, your your Twitter account, reading your tweets, you're all over the election. You've got strong opinions on everything. And uh, so you're, you're, you're staying focused on what's going on in the world, what interests you, and you're not letting anything take that away from you. No, I'm, I'm really not, Roy. And if I can just say this, you know, you mentioned that your listeners might feel saddened by this. I really hope they don't, because that's not my purpose, and that's not what I want people to take away. I hope what people can take away is that even when facing end of life, that doesn't mean you can't have quality time. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm sure. I'm sure many people have that takeaway as well. And uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, the moments when you're alone with your thoughts, and you told me I could ask you anything. When you're alone with your thoughts, how are you, how are you doing? And do you find yourself needing to reach out to people to help you along the way as well? Well, Twitter has been amazingly helpful. I mean, all of this affirmation, I, sometimes I find it quite over the top. But, you know, there's no way you can't feel good when you've got people sending you these messages and wanting to talk. It's a, it's a great honor, Roy. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've seen some of the, uh, the tweets that, you, that you've shared or tweets that have come to you. And, uh, and, and you've told us you've had some conversations, I imagine private conversations, with, with other folks who've, uh, who, are, who are living with cancer. And, uh, and, and that has to help. Yes, and and people who have had had friends and relatives pass away from cancer, and I and I I can see how difficult it has been for particularly spouses and children, and I think I'm very lucky that I don't have either of those because I think if I did, I'd feel the situation was much more difficult. Because I'd be worried, how do the kids get to university? Who's going to provide for them? Mm-hmm. I don't have those concerns. So that's, I, you know, in some weird way, I suppose, that's something to be happy about. Well, uh, you and I, uh, the other night when we talked, I, uh, I still have trouble with this. I talked to you about my wife and uh, her cancer battle and lost her four years ago. And, Mike, you helped me. I mean, you helped me. Yeah, well, you. you know, Roy, I've been a long-time listener to your show. Thank you. And I remember that, and I remember the story about the dog. And it was, yeah. I think, and if I may say, I think you were at your best at those very difficult times because you were honest. Thank you, Mike. 
Uh, boy. Um, tell us about the Memorial Boulder. Because <laughs> Adler didn't ask you about that. My colleague, he failed to ask you about that. I, I gather from your tweets. Yeah, yes, he didn't. But, you know, that's not for everybody. You know, some people, no. I think, find that a little too dark. But it's just who I am. I When I decided to start planning for, you know, funeral and where I would land at the end, I just thought, it's not my personality to put something sad. Right. So you have the memorial boulder, and it's there's a photograph of it on your Twitter account. There is. I'll, I'll put it out there for a while. I've got a lot of new followers in, that are obviously listening to the program. I'll send it out for them. Oh, good. Yeah. And by the way, Charles is a very compassionate guy. He really, really is extremely so. Uh, well, I don't know if you listen, but I said to him, could you play Jump by Van Halen? <laughs> because I really wanted to see if I could shake a real rock of broadcasting. And he trolled right with it. I thought that was, I thought he was great. He is great. He's very good at what he does. And, and again, he's a very compassionate guy. Uh, give me a thought. Uh, we have about a minute and a half here. I wanted to ask you this much sooner. What do you think of the election? Because you've been tweeting about oh, that a lot. Does anybody care? <laughs> you've been tweeting about it a lot. Well, I just, I mean, this is so boring and a bunch of, yeah. a bunch of nonsense. And, you know, this person said this 10 right. years ago. Oh, who cares? Who cares? You know, Mike. But this is, you know, you expect this in week one, right? You know. You've always had uh, strong opinions on, on issues and you've shared them in, uh, in media and elsewhere. And uh, I just want to say this again. Thank you for what you're doing. I know you, you didn't set out to be thanked, but... We owe you a lot for your courage, for your determination, for showing people there are choices and options. And uh, I'm going to stay in touch with you personally, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that uh, I had a chance to talk to you today. It's been my pleasure, Roy. Listen, were I not dying of cancer, there's no way I'd ever be on your show. We don't know that. Something positive <laughs> okay. Today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. And I'll be Thank talking you, to you. Roy. I'll be talking to you uh, off the air as well. We'll talk to you. Bye. Bye. Mike Sloan at Mike London Can. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.